Good morning. How's everybody today? Good, good, good. I, man, Kobe, I appreciate it. I appreciate your sensitivity to the Spirit this morning. Um, it, you know, when you get time this week, go back and listen through. Um, our worship isn't on the podcast, but if you go back and look at the feed that Mike does, it's on there. And just consider uh, the words of, or the lyrics of the songs that, that uh, Kobe and, and Hannah did this morning. And, and look at the message that God has for us, and you're going to see just... And all the, the last several songs, obviously... Um, we're just Kobe following the, the lead of the Spirit. And man, just continuing to confirm the message that God has for our church. And I absolutely love it. It just gets me, I just feel giddy inside knowing that the Lord is speaking to us this morning. So um, I, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with uh, verse 2. And while you're doing that, I wanted to, to share another story with you guys um, you know, I really, I've shared with, with this with you guys before. I love TED Talks. I love watching interviews of people that are smarter than I am because it, it challenges me to think about things in a way that I haven't uh, before. And so this week I'm scrolling through YouTube. It's one of my favorite uh, social media things. Uh, a lot to learn on there and a lot to not learn. <laughs> a lot of things that can distract you. Uh, but I, I ran across um, somebody, and, and you know how YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all that kind of curates your feed based on previous things that you've watched. And one of the guys that I've watched a lot of interviews and read several of his books is this guy named Malcolm Gladwell. If you've, re if you've heard of Malcolm Gladwell, raise your hand. Okay, cool. I, I don't agree with everything that he says, like, like most people, you know, like I don't agree with everything that most people say is what I'm trying to say. But he has a really interesting way that he looks at things. And I wanted to, to share a little bit of this interview that he was giving. And it, the, the, the basis of the interview was on what is the world going to look like post-COVID-19, right? Like what, how has this changed society and what's it going to mean for the world? And, and when I saw that headline, I was like, oh, that's something I'm interested in. So I started listening to it. And so um, he references a study that's done by these two economists um, that are trying to figure out the best way to improve a soccer team. Now, he didn't talk about why an economist was looking at how to improve a soccer team. He didn't cover that part. It must not have been important, but I found that odd. But anyway, these, these two economists are, are trying to figure out how to improve a soccer team. And so the question is, which, is gonna, which will improve the team more by uh, upgrading your best player or upgrading your weakest player. And what they found as they studied this is that by far the best way to improve a soccer team is not by getting a better player to replace your best player, but by improving your weakest player. And so this is called um, weak link theory is, is this theory that they've come up with. Okay, And soccer is a weak link sport. Like all of the players on the team can play their very best. And if you're an avid soccer fan in here, I apologize if I misspeak. I played soccer in high school, but that was a long time ago. Okay, But Soccer is a weak link team, and what that means is that all the players can play to their very best, but if their weakest link misses a pass or, or can't catch up and defend the ball the way he needs to, then the, the, the work of that game can be lost very quickly. Do you follow? Do you track with what I'm saying? Okay. In comparison, there are a lot of sports that are strong link sports like basketball where you can have a team that's just mediocre and you put a LeBron James or a Steph Curry on that team and immediately they're going to be propelled in the standings because of the plays of that one person, okay? Gladwell makes the point that in Canada, where he's from, and also in the United States, for decades, the United States has um, focused on a strong link system in terms of our health care 
right? So we build these huge hospitals. Um, we pay doctors a big salary, which is great. Those hospitals are, are able to do amazing things. The problem is, is that when we, we come into a pandemic like this, we see that system nearly collapse. He talked about in New York where he lives that there were at, at the peak of the COVID crisis there, which, I mean, there's, we all still are dealing with COVID. We're not past it yet. But at that point, there were 20,000 hospital beds that had staff and supplies that could be used. The issue is, is that there were 60,000 beds available in New York City, but they only had staff and supplies for 20,000. And so he makes the point that we've focused on this strong link system, thinking if we build these big facilities, if we if we pour a lot of money into research, that we're going to be prepared for anything. And it was things simple as PPE that cut the, our ability by a third, right? So we went from 60,000 beds to 20,000 beds. Okay, I bring all this up because when I'm listening to this interview, uh, Monday uh, evening, I think it was, you know how sometimes you'll be listening to something, it may not even be scripture, but immediately the Lord speaks, right? He just puts it in your spirit and you say, okay, God, you're saying something here, so let me dig into this a little bit. Here's, here's why I'm bringing this up. As soon as our normal routine is interrupted, our systems often collapse. I shared with you guys that when we first went into, break, into, into lockdown, that many of the churches that I was in communication with were just at a loss. Like they were trying to completely figure out how to do church in a setting that wasn't focused on a strong link system. Now, we're, we're not immune to this, right? I shared with you guys, there were a lot of people trying to figure out how do we do Sunday school when we're not at church, right? We don't have the room. We don't have the, the curriculum in front of everybody. How do we do that? Because we live in life groups, that's how we operate. It was a little easier for us because we already are texting. We're already talking on Facebook. We're already doing FaceTime calls. So while there was some learning there for us, it wasn't as big a deal as it was for a lot of people, right? My point is, is that the church as a whole, is built on a strong link system. Think about it with me. What in the, Culturally, in the United States, what do we spend most of our money on? We build big facilities, we, we hire staff, and we, we empower those staff to do the things. We spent a year studying the early church and, and what it looks like to, study com, to live in community, right? And if you look at that system, that's not a strong link system. That's a weak link system. Because the ability for the community to be a community isn't based on the talents and the skills and the resources of one person. It's based around the whole community, right? Every person. One of the defining characteristics of a community is that all the people involved in the community are fulfilling their roles, right? We, we know scripture and we talk about how all of us are given different gifts, just like we have different parts of our body and all of us serve a different purpose. And when we work in concert with one another, there's a much greater effect. Last week, um, God gave a message through Kobe, through myself, and then also through Glenn. God is speaking a word that we need to understand that the gift of grace that we have been given and living in an abiding life in the wisdom of God. And, and we need to let those things, the fact that we understand grace and that we know how to live in an abiding lifestyle, those things need to drive our worship. It needs to bring us to the throne room and let that be what sets us apart. Not because we have big facilities, not because we've hired really talented staff, but because we as a people of God are abiding in Him, living in grace, and sharing that message with others. 
Rather than us um, seeking the Lord on how to spend our time and resources, we're just a lot of times living for ourselves and we miss the opportunities that God's given us because our focus is not on Him. It's not on abiding. It's not on grace. It's on what am I going to do tomorrow that I'm going to enjoy. If you remember our study from the early church, there were leaders in every different area of ministry. But there was also a very clear understanding that every person was in ministry because the Holy Spirit lived inside of them, right? We need leaders. Leaders are are really important. We're going to talk a lot about leaders and authority today, but I want you to understand that if you are a believer, and I'm going to address this in a little more detail in the end, but if you are a believer, when that happens, the Holy Spirit indwells in you. And so at that point, you take on the characteristics of a living God. There is no room in that system for bystanders you cannot have the holy spirit living inside of you and say that work is for the staff right that's not how god has designed the system i want you to just hear me say this this morning i'm not often when you hear a message like this the tendency and i know this because i used to sit where you were is you think oh my gosh is the pastor talking about me today i want you to know that when i was thinking through these things today, there was not a single person in my mind that the Lord was like, this is a message for so-and-so, okay? That's not what this is. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to me while I'm listening to this guy who I don't even know if he's a believer, talking about strong link and weak link systems. But the Holy Spirit highlighted and said, well, this is a word for our church. And then I get into, that was Monday night, and I start my sermon preparations on Tuesday. Tuesday afternoon, I'm sitting at Hidden Grounds, and I open up Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and I start reading verses 2 through 9, and the Holy Spirit just blows the doors off the barn. It's like, oh my gosh, I see what you're doing. Okay, so let's dig into this today, okay? I want you to hear me say this. I'm sharing a word that God's put on my heart, and it's at that point, once you hear it, it's your responsibility to apply it to your life. I can't make you do that. So sit up in your spirit. Let's listen to the word of the Lord. Okay, so Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 2 through 9. The, the preacher says this. Keep the king's command because of the oath, because of your oath made before God. Do not be in a hurry. Leave his presence. And don't persist in a bad cause, since he will do whatever he wants. For the king's word is authoritative. And who can say to him, what are you doing? The one who keeps a command will not experience anything harmful, and a wise heart knows the right time and procedure. For every activity, there is a right time and procedure, even though a person's troubles are heavy on him. Yet no one knows what will happen, because who can tell him what will happen? No one has authority over the wind to restrain it, and there is no authority over the day of death. No one is just discharged during battle, and wickedness will not allow those who practice it to escape. All this I have seen, applying my mind to all the work that is done under the sun at a time when one person has authority over another to his harm. So as I'm reading this passage this week, one of my, uh, a hymn came to my mind. And it's, it's one of my favorites, and it's one of my favorites, honestly, because it's pretty simple. It's like an Irish hymn. Uh, it's really easy to play on guitar. And so as an as a, uh, older high school student, early college student, I really just grabbed onto this song because it was easy for me to play, and I was learning how to play guitar. But the more I sang it, the more I digested the lyrics, and the more they began to speak truth in my, into my life, the, the, the hymn has come thou found. I'm going to put, this is, I think, the third verse. And it stood out to me more than, more than others, and I want you to see why. It says, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let, that, let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, 
take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. It wasn't until uh, we were practicing one day and the pastor came in and he said, man, that third verse, y'all ever really look at the words of that? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'm singing them. He said, but have you really thought about it? He pointed out something that should have been obvious to me because of my background. But have you ever thought about, if you look at the third line, what's the last word there? Fetter, right? I'm not talking about Doug and Shirley. Missed them, by the way. Okay. What's a fetter? Have you ever thought about it? A fetter is a device, can be simple as a piece of rope, that you would use to tie an animal's feet together so they cannot wander off. Okay? I should know that because I grew up on a farm. We used fetters on a horse that used to kick while he was in the trailer. We tie his feet together so he couldn't kick. Okay, but think about what he's saying. What is the fetter? What is he asking the fetter to be? Not a piece of rope. God's not going to bind us down and hold us in place. His goodness. His goodness needs to be the fetter. The author is asking God to bind his heart, not because... We, not because we have to be bound, but because we want to be bound. We talk about this all the time, about the struggle of sin in our life, that we, we're headed on the right path, we're pursuing the Lord, and something gets our attention, and we get distracted, and we forget about God. All of us need to be bound, but not out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of things I ought to do, but by His goodness, right? It's His goodness that should bind us. Our wandering is not always intentional, but it is wandering nonetheless. And all of us need a reminder regularly about how good God is. I love the music today and that we're singing about the goodness of God because it reminds our hearts of where they ought to be. It reminds us of how good God is. So the first point I want to make today, I'm fixing to dig back into the scripture, is God gives us earthly leadership so that we can grow. And I want to say this too. This is just a good thing to know. It doesn't matter if you like or agree with those that are in leadership over you. That's irrelevant, okay? We'll dig into that a little bit more. But as long as they are not asking you to do something that's morally, ethically, or spiritually wrong, it's your obligation to obey what they're saying, okay? God's people have a rich history of not following his directives, right? Like we looked... We studied the book of Exodus recently. Now we're in Ecclesiastes. We've looked at the, a lot of the New Testament. We've studied the early church. Look at the trouble that Israel faced. We're going to look at a particular time in Israel's history today. But look at the trouble they faced. And you're going to see people doing the opposite of what God tells them. And as a result of that, they face hardships. They put themselves under hard, harsh conditions for no need. A great example of that is the reign of King Saul. Okay, And, and just... If you haven't read that story recently, you don't remember, the people cried out for a king. They demanded it, and so God appointed a king, and they hated Saul. They absolutely hated him. But the thing is, they asked for it. They asked for a king. This is what the preacher's talking about in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 when he's saying, keep the king's command because of the oath you made before man, before, excuse me, before God. He's talking about the fact that we have asked for leadership in our lives. Israel asked for a king. Samuel asked God about it. God, Samuel, who is the prophet, goes to God and says, the people are asking for a king. What do you want me to do? And God says, give them a king. Give them this one. Okay? Look at me with me this, this warning that Samuel gives. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 18. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He's talking to the people. He's saying, you want a king, this is what it's going to look like. He says, he will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. 
He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands of, or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters and be, to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best friends, vi, or best fields, vineyard, vineyards, olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants your female servants, your best cattle, your donkeys, and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flock, and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. So Samuel is speaking on God's behalf, and he's saying, look, you're asking for a king, and here's what it's going to cost you. And the people respond with, we want a king. They demand it. So God said, okay, you can have a king. Look at verse 18 through 19 in chapter 10. He says, and he said to the Israelites, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel out of Egypt and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were opposing you. So God's reminding them, you're asking for a king, but I'm already your king. You have that. Look at what I've done. And they said, no. And he says in verse 9, but today you rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, you must set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. So God appoints Saul as their king. And look, the people didn't like his commands. They didn't like the way they were being taxed. They didn't like the fact that they were going to have to be in war. But at that point, it didn't matter anymore. They got what they asked for. They were under Saul's leadership. Often we find ourselves under leadership that we don't agree with. But that's the way the world works. As soon as we rebelled against God and we took him out of the place of leadership in our lives, God said, okay, there's going to be somebody else between you and I. I want you to understand that just because we don't agree with leadership, and, and I'm just say for the purpose of clarity, I'm not talking about me. It's not about our relationship, right? I'm not fixing to give you a command that you're not going to want to follow. I'm talking about life in general, okay? There are going to be people in our lives that are in leadership over us, and we don't agree with them, and that's okay. God has us there for a reason. But if we don't submit to the authority that God has given us, then we won't learn what he has for us. God puts people in place over our lives, and whether we agree with them or not, God has put them there. And if they are asking us to do something, again, as long as it's not morally, ethically, or spiritually wrong, it's our obligation to do what they say. And there's a purpose in it, whether we like it or not. The preacher continues this thought in verse 4. He says, For the king's word is authoritative, and who can say to him, What are you doing? The one who keeps a command will not experience anything harmful, and a wise heart knows the right time and procedure. For every activity, there is a right time and procedure, even though a person's troubles are heavy on him. Now look, in our, in our passage, the, the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, is talking about an earthly king, Right? He's saying, you don't want to go against this guy because he has the ability and the authority to do whatever he wants and he'll take that out on you. But I want us to see the obvious thing here is that there's also a parallel being made to God here. Point number two I want to make today is that God is the ultimate authority. Not only does God place us under earthly leadership so that we can grow in our relationships with him and with others, but he also leads us to himself and he becomes our authority. I want to point out to you this morning, we're going to look in Matthew chapter 28 in just a second, but as soon as Jesus' public ministry begins, he began leading people to know him and then therefore to know God, right? That's God. He was 100% God, 100% man. 
And so as he begins his ministry, he's leading people to know himself. And of all the things that Jesus taught his followers, one of, there's one that for me is overarching over everything. And it's a thing that we're going to focus on today. But there's a specific command that Jesus gave his followers right before he returned to heaven. Jesus told his disciples to go into the world and make disciples. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is one we've heard a lot. Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus reminds them that the authority is his. He's not speaking out of place. He is reminding them that all authority has been given to me. And with that authority, I am saying to you, go and make disciples. And I want to, so Jesus commands us, right? Because we are his disciples. He demands us, for, of us to go and lead people to know God. And I want to point specifically to verse 20 where he says, um, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. The word observe here means to conform. This is a command that Jesus is making. And he's telling them that they are to make uh, other disciples and to teach their new disciples to make disciples. This is not a one-time deal where Jesus says to these 12 that are in front of him or 11 at this point, go and, you go and make disciples and then that, and the process ends. He's saying to the disciples, you go and make disciples and teach them how to make disciples. That's how the gospel is spread. Every believer, I want you to hear me say this. Every believer has this directive to make disciples. This may seem like a duh statement, but I want you to put this in perspective of weak link theory that we talked about just a minute ago. All of us have the same directive. Yet in church culture, we often delegate that to only a few. We look to our pastors, we look to elders, we look to deacons, we look to life group leaders, we look to Sunday school teachers, and we say, ministry is their job. I just come here when we have programs and I participate, or I just go to a life group and we have some discussion and then I go on about my life. But today in our passage, we're looking at this idea that God has authority over us and the thing that Jesus said for us to do is to be a disciple and to make disciples. Jesus didn't tell the disciples, okay, look, I'm about to leave. Y'all go hire a rabbi and have him share this message. Right? He said, you go and make disciples. Every believer is to be a disciple maker. And if you aren't actively building relationships to that end, you're not obeying the authority of Christ in your life. I want you to think about that. This is a command, but not one that we're to take in our own power and try to accomplish. We know that. We wait for the Holy Spirit to tell us the proper time and procedure. How do we go about doing it? We build relationships with people. We talked about blessing people for a long time. Begin with prayer. Listen to them. Eat with them. Serve them. And then share the gospel. We know the procedure. And that's not just a, a fancy acronym that we have to do to check off. It's a guide for us to say, how do I develop relationships that are surrounded around disciple making? And be honest with people, right? We're, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story when we get done today about how that worked out in my life. It's really cool because it's all God. I didn't do anything special. The Holy Spirit did it. 
When we do that, we are allowing, when we wait on the Holy Spirit, we let Him speak. He points out the people. We abide in that process. We bless them. In doing that, we are simply willing vessels that allow the Holy Spirit to work in that other person's life. The work of disciple making is, is a command to us, but it's not work that we do. We just live the way God has called us to live. And as the Holy Spirit is working in us, that's going to rub off on the people. But that requires that one, we're willing, and two, we're paying attention. That when those conversations need to happen, that we're in tune with the Holy Spirit. We're not just focused on the meal that we're eating or the conversation that we're having. But that we're looking at all of that together. But when we rely on others, and I've jokingly, or not jokingly, but for a long time I've called that professional ministry. When we rely on professional ministers to do that work for us, we miss out on the blessing and we're not obeying the call that God has for every believer. Look, if you've never led someone to the Lord, there's nothing sweeter than that. Think about what that did for your life when you gave your life to the Lord and how things changed and what an incredible moment that was. And when you get to, to play a small role, when you get to be a bystander, when that's happening, when the Holy Spirit is awakening someone to see the truth of grace, it's incredible. And by, by just choosing to not pay attention to what the Holy Spirit's doing around you, by choosing to not follow Jesus' directive, you miss out on that. The preacher makes the point at the end of verse 6 that there's a, there's a time and a procedure and even when a person's life is heavy on them, the call is still there. We don't get a pass from Jesus' command because life is hard. We often, church, we often put things off until the right time, right? Because I'm not ready yet. My life is not set up right, correctly. We can come up with a lot of excuses. I would challenge you today to consider the people that you know that have made significant impacts for the kingdom. And really look at their lives. Their lives are not perfect, right? Their lives are messy. They're busy. The people themselves are not perfect, but what they are is willing to say yes to the call of God. When we pursue Christ, when we obey His command to live for others, especially in the midst of hardships, the truth of the gospel is more clear than at any other time. Because what those people are seeing and what they're hearing match. Because what, what, what we say is that there's nothing in our lives that should be more important than Christ. But then we go through a tough time and we put all our focus and all our energy on this one hard thing. And it's like, oh, that Jesus thing. Well, I mean, he's in this, but we're not going to talk about any of that. But when we're going through those hard times and we're obeying the commands of Jesus, and we are dealing with our hard stuff, we're letting Christ deal with it, but at the same time, we're bringing people along with us on that journey. They see, maybe for the first time, that even in the hard stuff, Jesus is there. They see that even in the hard times, our focus doesn't have to just be on that. That even in the hard times, Christ still works. The Holy Spirit is still active. And it normalizes that stuff. It's a, it says, wait, their lives are also not perfect? And Jesus is involved in that? Well, maybe he can be involved in my life too. It becomes clear because we are living and doing what we see Jesus doing in his ministry. Look, Jesus knew that he was on the way to the cross. But he didn't go, time out, guys. I'm going to need a minute to myself to process what's about to happen. 
And I'm not saying we don't need that sometimes. Do that if the Holy Spirit's telling you to. But I'm saying Jesus is headed to the cross, and what's he thinking about? Not himself. He's thinking about these people, and he's thinking, I only have so much time left. They need to understand all the things God's got for them. And he prepares them. Jesus continued to obey God, even on the way to the cross. So we can't wait for the right time. We have to trust God. And when he says go, we go. And if God says go, it is the right time. Let's continue on verse 7 through 9. It says, yet no one knows what will happen because who can tell him what will happen? No one has authority over when to restrain it. And there's no authority over the day of death. No one is discharged during battle. And wickedness will not allow those who practice it to escape. All this I've seen, applying my mind to all the work that is done under the sun. At a time when one person has authority over another to his harm. So the last point I want to make today is this. The time to say yes to God's leadership is now. It's not next week. It's not next year. Whatever God's telling you to do, do it now. Look, there's so much that we don't know. When we try to make plans, what we're doing is we're trying to get all the variables figured out so we can put an action plan in place that's clear, cut, and dry, and we know exactly where we're going to go, how we're going to get there. It's like planning a trip, right? We know how long it's going to take. We know we're going to stop. We know we're going to spend the night. That's not how life works with God. Because there's a lot of variables that we'll never see and we'll never understand. And if we're waiting to figure all that out before we take a step of faith, we're going to miss the opportunities that God has for us. If he's telling you to do something, that's the time to do it. Unless he's saying, do this in a year, do it when he says it. We don't have the foresight or the knowledge to question God's timing. We must trust his wisdom and his power to accomplish the goals that he has for us. Because again, it's not us doing the work. All we're saying is yes. We're just submitting to the call. And then he's going to do the work through us. No longer can we rely on others to do the work that we are called to do. We cannot sit in our life groups. We cannot sit in church on a Sunday morning and hear a call from God and say, yeah, but I think that's so-and-so's job. I should let them do that. That's not how the body of Christ works. God has given us an incredible gift. We understand more than most the grace of God, how to hear His voice, and the incredible results of God-exclusive activity in our lives. We get to experience that all the time because we've learned over years how to abide. We've learned what it means to live in grace. And God's given that to us as a gift so that we can share it with others. I love the line in there where he says, no one gets pulled out of battle, right? And you think about that? We're in the middle of a battle. When you're in the middle of war, just because things don't feel right doesn't mean you get to just step out. They put you in jail for that, in case you were wondering. That's how that works. We're in the middle of a battle. And, and God needs, God doesn't need, God wants all of us to participate in that. That's our call. We've been directed by Jesus to make disciples. And specifically, God spoke through the Holy Spirit that we're to abide, to live in community, to join Him in setting people free, and to be His love in a broken world. And I can go on and on and on and talk about all the messages that God has given this body over the last five years. Right? And none of that's changed. God hasn't changed. That's still our call. These truths are, are truths that God has given us, not for one day in the future, but for right now. This is the way we are to live now. 
God has given us these gifts of wisdom, these experiences in life under the leadership of the Holy Spirit so that we can share that stuff with other people. Central Louisiana is full of people who don't know God, who don't understand His grace, and they don't know how active He desires to be in their lives. Now is the time for us to stop making excuses and to follow through with our call to lead people to know God. Wednesday night, we had a group of young men. They were coming um, before COVID. They were coming, they were out of high school, um, either graduated or have chosen not to be in high school. They're 18 and above, okay? Great group of guys, very respectful, love them to death. They were coming before COVID, and Bethany was like, hey, we really need to provide something, so I'm, I'm going to need you to teach these guys. I was like, okay, that's fair. All right, that's kind of my role, right? Okay? So we start with just having conversations. So when the, the youth and the students would stop playing ball or, or doing whatever they were doing to have Bible study, I would pull these guys aside, and it just started with having conversations, just getting to know each other, talking about life. We did that for a couple of weeks, and I would share some things that we were talking about on Sunday mornings through our, through our studies uh, here. And then COVID happens, and we haven't seen those guys since late February, probably. And they all showed up Wednesday night, and I was really excited to see them. And so, just like we always do when it was time for the lessons, we, we pulled some chairs out, and we all sat down in agreement. I said, guys, what's been going on? What's happening in your life? And one guy in particular, which I was telling Glenn this week, I've always just, I really have felt a strong connection between he and I. There's nothing similar about our lives at all. But the Holy Spirit has just highlighted him for me, okay? And so I said, man, what's been going on with your lives? Talking to the whole group and a few people, you know, just said some silly things, just trying to make the awkward silence go away. And this one particular guy says, man, he said, the Lord really, I feel like has just given me a directive for my life, that my life is supposed to be about helping other people. And I was like, dude, that is awesome. And I was like, How, you know, what led you to that? And he said, honestly, I, I'd been feeling it for a long time. And he said, it's something that you said the second time I ever came here that really I felt like the Lord confirmed that for me. I was like, dude, that's awesome. I was like, do you remember what I said? And he's like, no, not really. And I was like, okay, that's fine, you know. And, and I said, well, and it, he made the comment. He said, you know, it's weird. He said, used to, I would talk to God about stuff. And it might be a month or two before I really felt like I had an answer, like I could feel like I was headed in the right direction. He said, but recently, it seems like, man, I'll ask God a question within a day or two. I've got my answer. He's like, man, this is just crazy. I was like, no, dude, that's not crazy. That's the Holy Spirit. And so I began to talk about abiding. And he and this other guy, I'm telling you, they literally were sitting on their edge of their seats when we're talking about abiding. I was like, matter of fact, buddy of mine's elder at our church just wrote a book about this. If you guys would like a copy and continue to come on Wednesday nights, like we can kind of work through this thing and I can teach you what it means to hear from the Lord, how to hear his voice and obey what he says and then see God's exclusive activity in their life. And they're like, oh, yeah, can we start next week? Yes, of course. Now look, all that's happening. The Holy Spirit's doing every bit of that work. I've got nothing in common with these guys other than the fact that I'm the one that has the keys that opens the building where they like to come play basketball. That's all we got, okay? But, because we're spending time here, because we're obeying God's call, because we're loving on these guys, the Holy Spirit is doing a work. And I didn't work hard for that. I didn't sit down and spend a couple hours drafting up something about, you know, for us to have a conversation. I'm just off the cuff sharing my life, what God's doing in my life, having conversations, asking what God's doing in their life, asking what's going on. How can I pray for you? Simple stuff, things that we all know how to do. All of us know how to talk to people. But I'm listening, and I'm waiting, and I'm watching, and the Holy Spirit is doing a work. That's what God's call for us is, is to lead people to have conversations and allow room for the Holy Spirit to do a work in their life. 
So now is the time for us to stop making excuses and to follow through with our call to lead people to know God. Unfortunately, the church, not this church, but church globally, has been misled about its purpose and the purpose of God's people. I, want to, I, want, I put this up on the screen. I want you to read this with me. This is something that was in one of my um, commentaries this week. And man, when I read it, it was just like, yeah. It says, furthermore, there is rampant entitlement mentality in the church. There is the presumption based on arrogance and greed that preaches and teaches that God owes us a trouble-free life under the sun because he has allegedly promised it, regardless of the examples of Job, Jeremiah, Christ, and Paul, not to speak of the countless martyrs through millennia. The church has teachers within that blind, within that blind their sheep to the realities of both Scripture and the devout Christians who suffer, not for their sin or that of their parents, but for the glory of God. God didn't promise a trouble-free life. He promised us a life with Him. He experienced trouble. We too are going to experience trouble. But it's in that trouble that we experience joy. Listen, I made reference to this a while ago, but I want you to think about this. We were not only made in the image of God, but when we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells in us. I made reference to this last week, uh, a song that I heard that, you know, back in the day before Christ, God, they built these incredible temples for him to live in, and he left that to live in these broken vessels, right? This means that when, when Christ lives in us, we share his character and his purposes. Because he's in us, we can't get away from that. God's works, his sacrifices, and his love for the sake of his people, all of that as believers, because the Spirit is in us, that is in us too. It's our call. It is who we are. And so to do anything other than that, to not live a life of love and sacrifice to others, is to deny who we have asked to be. Because we asked Christ to come and live in our lives, to save us from our sins, to make us like himself. And if we're going to be like Christ, that means we live like Christ. That means we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him. We, we say the things that he says. We teach the things that he teaches. We serve the way that he served. Our lives are not about us anymore. We gave up those rights when we knelt before the cross and asked Christ to be our Savior. I would encourage you this week to let the Holy Spirit, if you feel the need, to recalibrate your heart. To get things back in the place where they're supposed to be. And I want you to understand, make no mistake about this, we will experience joy. When you follow Christ and you serve people and you love people and you suffer with people, there is joy in every bit of that. I went to a funeral this week. A buddy of mine whose funeral I went to, uh, his grandfather passed away. It's been four weeks ago now. His grandmother just passed away last week. And I went to this funeral. It was outside. Everybody had a mask on. We were safe. Don't worry. And I'm standing at this funeral. The sun's beating down. It's 95 degrees. And the sweetest breeze you have ever felt in your life covered that whole cemetery. And, and I don't know if you guys have experienced, we can have a private conversation about this, but I, I don't know about you, but I can feel the Holy Spirit when he's present, right? Like when in a moment like that where a group of believers are gathered and the scripture says that the Holy Spirit is there with them, you could feel it. Now these people are, are mourning and they're sad and there's joy because their grandmother's not suffering anymore. 
Her grandfather, when they, they talked about it at the funeral, his biggest worry was how Miss Marge was going to make it without him. He didn't need to worry. She didn't have to. They're up there in heaven dancing together. There is joy in that. We can't make sense of that. It's a mystery of God. Why would anybody experience joy when they've just lost a grandmother? I don't know. I can't explain it. And you can't either probably. But the fact is that it's there. And one of the time, most sorrowful times I can even imagine in a person's life is the, the death of someone that means so much to them. And there's still joy there. That's only something that Christ can do. But that's what we have to offer. Is to say to people, look, life is going to be hard. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Life is going to be hard but God is with us. And when we do life, brothers and sisters, when we live as God has called us to live, we bring that joy into the suffering of other people's lives. We cannot continue to preach a gospel with our lives and contradict that with the way that we live. Excuse me, I said that wrong. We cannot continue to preach a gospel with our lives that contradicts the life of Jesus. We can't say that we're believers. We can't say that we're following Christ and then live a life that doesn't look like the one that he lived. Those two things can't exist. One's true and one's not. Our lives should reflect the life of Jesus. Jesus did not avoid hard things and we shouldn't either. Sharing our burdens with one another, being authentic with what's going on in our lives is what it means to share the gospel. It's saying, hey, this is real life for me. Jesus is in it. It's hard, but there's joy and there's peace. And God can do that in your life too. Let me tell you how. Let me let you walk with me and experience it vicariously for a little while until you get until you're ready. Jesus healed the broken through his ministry. And he said that we would do even greater things than he did. If we're going to be God's love in a broken world, we don't need fancy buildings. We don't need a big budget. We just need to be like Jesus. That don't cost nothing. That's free. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for a challenging word for myself this week. Lord, I ask that, um, that you would give all of us moments of reflection this week, times where we can think back on, on this message that you have for us, but also on the call that you have given us individually for our lives. The things that you have said need to be a priority. Father, I ask in the areas where we need it that you would recalibrate our hearts, that they could get in tune with you, that we could follow your guidance, not because we have to, not because we should, but because of your goodness, because of what we experience in life with you, that, that we would be drawn to you. Father, let other people see that. Let other people see that this is not just a religion for us. This is not just a thing that we do because we enjoy the people. That this is about you. It's because of a love for you because you have loved us so well. Jesus, we need you. We need you. Our friends need you. Our families need you. So Father, teach us how to be like you. We ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.